You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, you know, speaking of parenting, uh, I love the way James Dobson put it years ago when he said, child rearing is like baking a cake. You don't know that you have a disaster until it's too late. <laughs> well, in many ways, that describes this passage before us this morning. Because in this passage, what we have is a, is a contrast between uh, Samuel versus the sons of Eli, who were named Hophni and Phinehas. Now, on the one hand, Samuel was, was dedicated, whereas on the other hand, Hophni and Phinehas were delinquents. Samuel, we find out, ministered in the presence of the Lord, whereas Hophni and Phinehas uh, treated the ministry of the Lord uh, like, with, with, with contempt. And in the end, Eli discovers that he's got a disaster on his hands. So now, with that, let's pick it up where we left off. Let's look at verse 11 where we, we, we look at this contrast between Hannah's son, who, whose name was Samuel, versus Eli's, Eli's sons, whose names were Hophni and Phinehas. So verse 11 says again, Then Elkanah, remember Elkanah was, was Hannah's husband. Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now let's get some review. Remember, by way of review, last week we, we, we met Hannah. And we saw that Hannah was unable to have children, and so she poured her heart out to the Lord, and she prayed, and she vowed, and she said, Lord, if you give me a son, then I vow that I will dedicate him back to you, and he will serve you. He will serve in the ministry all the days of his life. And of course, that is where we get our model for baby dedications. And so she, she, she commits her son. She dedicates her son. Now, we saw last week that, that she, she brings her son to the temple and she leaves him there when he, was, when he was old enough to be weaned. We mentioned last week that weaned meant that he was about three years old. And so, now, by the way, the difference between our baby dedications and that baby dedication was that she left her son at the temple. You are taking yours back home, just so, just so we're clear. So she brings her son to the temple, and then it says, he, the boy, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. <clears throat> Love the way Charles Spurgeon put it years ago when he said, before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. Better still, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. And so when he's three, she brings him to the temple. But now, in contrast to Samuel, who was, who was ministering before the Lord, in contrast to that, verse 12 says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that any man who offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to them, uh, to the man who was offering the sacrifice, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if, and if a man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now in contrast, verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. 
And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So now, again, we have this contrast in this passage. We see that Samuel did one thing and the sons of Eli did something else. For example, verse 12 says that the sons of Eli were worthless men. Now the Hebrew word there that's being used is the Hebrew Belial. Now, Belial uh, can be translated, they were good for nothing. It's a phrase that means to, 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 to be without profit, to be without benefit. Uh, it, it can be literally translated an evil person. In fact, on one occasion, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, used Belial uh, as a synonym for Satan himself. And so it says that, that they were worthless men. And it goes on to say, they did not know the Lord. Now, this is ironic. The, the, the irony here is, is here they were. They, they were serving in the ministry. They were serving in the temple, and they didn't even know the Lord. They didn't even have a relationship with God. Now, this, by the way, is not as uncommon as you might think. Uh, years ago, there was a pastor named Jim Cimbala. He pastors Brooklyn Tabernacle. And years ago, uh, he was asked to, to be the guest speaker at the Southern Baptist Convention, sort of a pastor's conference, if you would. So there's, there's thousands of pastors at this conference. He stands up and he preaches this message. And after he preaches a message to all these pastors that are in the room, he then gives an altar call for people to come forward and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now listen, this was a pastor's conference. I mean, wouldn't you think that everybody at a pastor's conference had already received Jesus as their Lord and Savior? They already believe in the Lord? They already know the Lord? Well, would you believe he gives us altar call for people to come forward and hundreds of pastors come forward to pray and receive Jesus as their Savior for the first time? All these men serving in the ministry and they didn't even know the Lord. That was Hophni and Phinehas. They served in the temple and they didn't even know the Lord. Now, by the way, what were they doing that, that made them so worthless? It says they were worthless men. Well, for starters, they were pocketing the proceeds. Uh, now, you have to understand, a little, little context. In the book of Leviticus, the priests were allowed to keep a portion of the sacrifice for themselves. It's kind of how they were paid. It's how they survived. Uh, in the Bible, we see that, that the priests were not expected to serve the Lord for free. And if you remember, in the book of Leviticus and also in, in Exodus we see that, that the, pri the priestly tribe was the only tribe that did not receive an inheritance of land. All the other tribes of, uh, of Israel, they all received a portion of the promised land. They all got some land where they could, where they could grow crops. They could, they could raise herds, but not the tribe of Levite, not, not, the, not the priestly tribe. Why? Well, because the priestly tribe, they were expected to live by faith. They were expected to, to, to step out and, and, and just believe that God would provide for them. Just believe that, that God's people would be obedient to God's word and actually tithe and give 10% of their crops and 10% of their, of their flocks back to the Lord. And that's how God would take care of the priests. Well, now, according to Leviticus chapter 7, a certain portion of the sacrifice 
was meant for the, for the priest to keep. There was a certain portion for them that they would keep, but then there was another portion that was to be given exclusively to the Lord, and then there was a third portion that would be returned back to the man who made the sacrifice so that he could eat that with his family. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 7, the portion that belonged to the priest would have, been, would have been the breast, the brisket, and the right shoulder. That was their portion to keep. But here's what was happening. In this passage, Hophni and Phinehas, they wanted more than their, than their allotted portion. They wanted more than what the scripture said they could have. They wanted their portion, and they also wanted the best portions for themselves as well. What they wanted was, was the fatty portions. Because we, we know that, that, you know, that the fat, that, that's where the flavor is, right? In fact, we also know that the, uh, the, the fattier cuts are the more tender cuts. But then again, on the other hand, the, the more lean cuts, yeah, they might be drier, but they're also healthier. They're better for your heart. They're, they're healthier to eat. Although I did see a t-shirt at the, at the gym the other day that said, it was quoting Isaiah 55 verse 2 that says, let your soul delight itself in fatness. It's a great shirt for the gym. And so here they were, they wanted their portion and they wanted the fat portion as well. But listen, the scripture teaches that the fat belonged to the Lord. They'd give the, the best, the most flavorful, you would give that to the Lord. That was his portion. So they not only wanted their portion, they wanted God's portion on top of that. And so what we have in this passage is an intentional contrast between the sons of Eli versus Samuel, the adopted son of Eli. And so we see that the sons of Eli, in many, many ways, they were much like the nation of Israel as a whole. Remember, the nation of Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes whereas Samuel was seeking to do what was right in God's eyes. And so the sons of, of, of Eli, they lived to please themselves, whereas, the, where, whereas Samuel was living to please the Lord. And so we're going to see that the sons, I'm sorry, that the sins of the sons of Eli grew and grew and grew, whereas the Bible says Samuel grew in the Lord. He grew in favor with the Lord. So we have this contrast. And now as we pick it up in verses 22 through 26, now we discover Eli's mistake. Verse 22. It says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing about all that his sons were doing in all of Israel, and, and, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from, from, from all of the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear uh, the, the people the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now in contrast, verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And so again, we, we have this contrast. And we have a couple things happening. On the one hand, it, it seems that, that Eli was a great mentor to his surrogate son, his, his, his adopted son, Samuel. But at the same time, he was too passive with his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And so it's like there was two things happening. Number one, on the one hand, it's, it's like Eli knew what his sons were doing. He knew what they were involved in. But then number two, somehow he kept Samuel from knowing what they were doing. He kept Samuel from knowing about it. I love the way Chuck Swindoll put it when he said, Eli kept one hand over Samuel's eyes and another hand over his own. 
He was kind of turning a blind eye. Now, so what we see here is that Hophni and Phinehas, in addition to skimming the proceeds, the Bible says that they were also sleeping with the women who served in the temple. Now, the Bible doesn't talk too much about, about women actually serving in the temple. It, 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 there's just one obscure little verse that talks about it. It's, it's Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, that says, He made the laver of bronze and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And so there were women who served, but they, they, they served at the entrance. They served at the door, but we don't really know what they did. Now, there's some who wonder, well, maybe they, they served in sort of a greeter's ministry. Others maybe wondered, well, maybe they served in kind of a cleaning ministry. We, we don't really know, but what we do know is that Hophni and Phinehas were abusing their position of authority. They were abusing their position of trust, and they were taking advantage of these women. And now Eli finds out. He finds out what they're involved in, but basically he just gives them a, a, a tongue lashing, a, a verbal lashing, just a little slap on the wrist. And, and, and frankly, they should have been disqualified from ministry. They should have been kicked out. They should have been fired. They should have been removed from ministry, but he doesn't remove them. He just kind of scolds them and then turns, the, uh, turns a blind eye, kind of covers it up. You know, in the same way nowadays, we, we hear about all these ministry scandals that are taking place today and how they're being covered up today. Like, for example, uh, a year or so ago, I heard about a pastor named John Lowe. John Lowe pastors a, a church called New Life Christian Church and World Outreach. And on a Sunday morning in front of his church, in front of the whole congregation, he stood up and, and confessed that he had committed adultery 20 years ago. So he's making this confession, but then all of a sudden, as he makes this confession, the woman involved... You might say the victim involved, she comes to the stage and she clarifies that this was not a, an extramarital affair. This was not an adulterous relationship. She clarifies it was sexual abuse as she was only 16 years old at the time. But it had been covered up. In fact, even as he was supposedly confessing it, he was covering it up. And we hear report after report of this. In fact, a, a year ago, May of, of 2022, a 300-page independent report surfaced and came on the scene exposing decades-long uh, cover-ups by the Southern Baptist Convention uh, where, where they documented more than 700 cases where, where there was sexual abuse not only of women but also of children by pastors in, in their denomination. And they'd been covered up. For decades, they've been covered up. And so much like the, the, the Southern Baptist Convention, Eli knew what his sons were doing, but he looked the other way. He turned a blind eye. He swept it under the rug. He covered it up. Listen to this. When it comes to sin, we need to stop covering, we need to stop concealing, and we need to start confessing. Proverbs uh, twenty-eight thirteen says, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn away from them, they will receive mercy. So in some ways, as a parent anyway, it seems that, that Eli was making the same mistake that many parents today make. In that, you know, we hear parents today say things like, well, you know what, I just want to be my child's best friend. You know, I want them to like me. I want to, you know, I, I want them to trust me. I don't want them to feel uncomfortable. I don't want them to feel judged by me. I want to be their best friend. Respectfully, can I just say to you, your children do not need you to be their best friend. You know what they need? They need you to be their parent. That's what they need. Love the way child psychologist Leonard Sachs put it in his book titled uh, Collapsing of Parenting. He says, parents today suffer from role confusion. 
We don't even know what our role is anymore. We think our role is to be their buddy, to be their best friend. In fact, it's interesting. Harvard conducted a study where they discovered that the number one key, the number one factor to prevent juvenile delinquency is a father's firm but fair and yet consistent discipline. A father's discipline, that is the number one factor to prevent child delinquency, juvenile delinquency. Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And yet, listen to this. It would seem that, that because Hophni and Phinehas did not know their father's discipline, therefore they didn't fear the discipline of the Lord. They didn't know his discipline, so they didn't fear God's discipline. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. It's saying, you know what? Don't knock them down. Build them up. But you know what? That involves being hands-on. That involves actually being there, being a part of the process, being involved, and, 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 and being clued in. You know them. You, you know what they're going through, and you know what they're doing. I mean, what they're actually doing. You know, sometimes in parenting, we think we know what they're doing. Years later, we find out what they were actually doing. In fact, it's interesting. There was a study of, of 3,000 parents and their teenagers. And in this study, they found that, that, that parents in general are clueless. Yes, teenagers, you heard it, heard it here first. You were always saying it, and now they're science. But parents in general are clueless in that they found that, that, that parents of teenagers believe, like, like 30% of them believed that, that their teenagers might have sampled, might have tried alcohol, 30%. Or as it turns out, more than 66% of teenagers were actually drinking, not just sampling, not just trying, but actively getting drunk and actually drinking on a regular basis. And, and, and it just goes on and on. I mean, things like drugs and sex, and the list just goes on and on. And the study just shows that most parents give their kids the benefit of the doubt. Most of us have our head in the sand. Most of us are passive and not as involved as we think we are. That was Samuel. I'm sorry, that was Eli, <laughs> not Samuel. Samuel was the good guy in the story. And so now with that, verse, verse 27 down to the end of the chapter, we discover what Eli was actually guilty of. Verse 27. And then there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose uh, him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar and burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of Israel, your, your, your father, uh, all my offerings uh, by, by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I have commanded for my dwelling, and you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I had promised that your house, the house of your father, should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, but, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and cut off your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity uh, that, that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar will be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. And all your descendants of your house shall, shall, shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And by the way, most believe the priest talked about here is, is uh, uh, Zadok, who we meet later on in 2 Samuel. We also, some believe uh, that this may be foreshadowing Jesus, who would be of the priesthood of Melchizedek one day to come. But he goes on and it says, And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house uh, shall come to implore him uh, uh, for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and they shall say, Please, uh, put put me in the priest's place that I may eat a morsel of bread. And so now this, this, this mysterious unnamed prophet shows up on the scene, and he declares to Eli, saying that, you know what? Uh, judgment is coming to you. Now what we notice is that Eli wasn't guilty of these things himself, right? I mean, he wasn't the one pilfering uh, the, the proceeds. He wasn't the one sleeping with the women. He wasn't guilty of these things himself, but he knew they were happening, and he refused to do anything about it. And so because he was refusing to do something about it, that made him guilty of it himself. And so now this prophet's telling him, listen, he's saying, you know what? Because you are honoring your sons more than you honor me, judgment is coming. And so Eli wasn't guilty of being a bad priest. He was guilty of being an absent father. His crime wasn't pilfering the proceeds. His crime was permissive parenting. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, The the Houston Police Department years ago issued a a five-step plan on how you can raise a juvenile delinquent. Step one, begin by emphasis, uh, by, by giving the child everything he wants, and in this way, he'll believe that the world owes him something. Step two, never give him spiritual training. Just wait until he's 21 and let him decide for himself. Number three, be sure not to give him too much of your time and attention. This will teach him that the only person he can trust and the only person who really matters is himself. Step four, avoid using the word wrong. It may develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later uh, when he's arrested that society is against him and he's being persecuted. Step five, prepare yourself for a life of grief because you'll likely have it. That was Eli. He was disengaged, he was uninvolved, he was passive, and now there's a life of grief heading his way. He's being told by this prophet that his line, his family line is going to be cut off. His two sons are going to die on the same day. He himself is going to be cut off. Because of his lack of involvement, a life of grief was coming his way. And now chapter 3, the first 10 verses, we learn lessons from, from, from the dedicated, the delinquents, and the disengaged. Verse 1, it says, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, 
And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was, uh, of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And so he ran to Eli and he said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down again. So he lay back down. And the Lord called again, saying, Samuel, and Samuel rose. And he went uh, to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Go and lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose, and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli had said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay back down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at the other time, saying, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. There's a couple of observations. First of all, it says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no frequent vision. The John Knox version of the Bible says, a, a, a message from the Lord was a rare treasure. He would not openly reveal himself. Here's the idea. The, the idea is that, is that the people of Israel, they, they kept doing what was right in their own eyes over and over and over again, meaning that, that they kept rejecting God. They kept rejecting the word of God, the command of God. And, you know, so, so God would speak to them. God would, would, would warn them, but they kept ignoring God's warnings over and over and over again till finally God was like, you know what? I'm going to stop speaking. If you're not going to listen, then I'm not going to speak. And so it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Now, what days would that be? Remember last week we mentioned that the book of 1 Samuel was written at the time of the Judges. The time of the judges was this three, almost 400-year period of time where the people kept re repeating the same pattern over and over, where they would sin, and then they would reap the consequences of their sin, which would then drive them to repent and turn back to God, but then they would just repeat the pattern over again. Uh, commentators call it the sin cycle. They would, they would sin, they would reap, they would repent, and then they would repeat over and over and over again. Now, at that time when they would repent, when they would turn back to God, God would raise up a judge. Now, the word judge is the Hebrew word shafat. It doesn't mean like a judge in a courtroom. It doesn't mean judge Judy. Rather, it's a word that means someone who delivers, someone who rescues. Now, in the Bible, there were 13 of these so-called judges, uh, 12 men and one woman. So there were men like, like Gideon and, and, and Samson. But then there was a woman by the name of Deborah. Now Samuel was the last of the judges. He was the last judge. And so God would use these judges to, to rescue his people, to deliver his people. And they would repent, they would turn back to God. But then, kind of like an addict, uh, they, 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 what would happen? You know, an addict who says, you know, uh, this will be the last one, or this will be the last time, this will be my last drink, this will be my last hit, whatever it is. And sure enough, what happens? They turn right back and they do it all over again. They go back and they have another and they do it again and again and again. This is what the people of Israel were doing. And, and, and they repeated this cycle, the so-called sin cycle, for more than three, almost four centuries. Now something else that we notice is that in verse three, it says, the lamp of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord. There's a couple things happening. 
First of all, Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, tells us that that the, the job of the priest, the job description for the priest, was to continually go in uh, to where the ark was kept and, and, to, and to ensure that the menorah, that the lampstand in that room, was constantly filled and constantly lit. Now, lampstand was to signify the glory of the Lord. So it could never burn out. You, could, you had to always make sure that it was constantly burning. Now, it would seem that in this passage, it would seem that that Eli was getting really old, his eyesight was getting really dim, and he was having a hard time by himself going into the Holy of Holies and keeping this lamp lit. So, So to some degree, it was being delegated to Samuel. In fact, it seems that Samuel actually was sleeping in the holy place, like, like he had a, a, a bed in, in, in the holy place where he would sleep there. And, and that way, while, while he was spending the night and sleeping there, if, 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 the, if the lamp was, was growing dim, if it was flickering, if it was starting to go out, he could notice that, he could get up, then he could go get Eli and bring Eli in there, kind of help him navigate and see, and then help him light that lampstand again to keep the lampstand burning. But now, figuratively, it would seem that as the sun was going down on the priesthood of Eli, the light was beginning to shine on the soon-to-be prophet Samuel. And so now God calls Samuel three times. And after three times of calling him, finally Eli realizes this might be God who's speaking to him. He says, the next time you hear the voice, say, speak for your servant hears. Now, by the way, Whenever we read that story, whenever we hear that story, I mean, almost all of us, don't we usually picture, you know, this, this little boy in his footed pajamas, maybe with his little teddy bear, coming in and saying, speak for your servant listens. Well, did you know that Josephus, the, the ancient Jewish historian, says that Samuel at this point was somewhere between 12 to 13 years old? Do not let your 12 or 13-year-old walk around in his footed pajamas. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for boy that, that's being used here when it says the boy was ministering before the Lord is a Hebrew word that really would better be translated youth, describing a young adult, not a three-year-old. And so what this is saying is, is that he, he's either about to have his bar mitzvah or he's already been bar mitzvahed, meaning that he, he's, he's now either becoming or has already become a young man at this point. And now that's when the Lord speaks to him. That's when he hears the voice of the Lord. That's when he comes to personally know the Lord at a personal level. And now he hears the voice of the Lord speaking to him. And from that point on, Samuel now is going to speak the word of God to the people of God for the glory of God. And by the way, this, this underscores the importance of reaching our children for the Lord while we can. And by the way, the younger the better. In fact, research indicates that that 84% of people who get saved, and this is not just nationwide, this is worldwide, 84% of people who get saved do so before they turn 20 years old. Now, more than 60% of them get saved between the ages of 4 and 13 years old. But after they hit the, 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 the milestone age of 20, the odds of reaching them for Christ drop 10 to 1. So the younger, the better. In fact, I love the story of Dwight Moody. Dwight Moody was asked to go and be a guest speaker at a, at a very, very small church. So he went and he spoke, and, and, and when he came home, his wife said, well, how did it go? How many people got saved and came to Christ? And Moody answered and said, two and a half. She's like, what are you talking about, two and a half? Do you mean like two adults and one child? And he smiled and said, no, I mean two children and one adult. She's like, what are you talking about? 
He says, well, when you think about it, adults have already lived half of their life without the Lord, so they only have half of their life left to give to the Lord, whereas children can give their whole life to the Lord. So the younger, the better. And so what we have this morning in this passage is, is Eli was disengaged, and as a result, his sons were delinquent, whereas Hannah was devoted, and as a result, her son was dedicated. And so over and over in this passage, we have this contrast where we see the, the sinfulness of Eli's family versus the faithfulness of Samuel. And so Samuel, the Bible says, ministered in the presence of the Lord. But then the Bible says that Hophni and Phinehas treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The Bible says that Samuel grew in favor with the Lord, whereas Hophni and Phinehas grew in their sins. And so now we see that, that, that God stopped speaking to the family of Eli, but now Samuel says, speak for your servant hears. And then we see that the lamp was going out. And in some ways that, that lamp that was going out really speaks of the nation of Israel as a whole. It would seem that, that, that for the nation of Israel, the light was dimming, but God was about to rekindle that light through this young prophet named Samuel, who by the way, in the Hebrew language, his name means God hears. God hears. And now he hears the voice of God, and now he starts to speak the message of God to the people of God. And so perhaps the lesson for us is that, you know what, for, as parents, it's not enough for us to simply dedicate our children to the Lord, but we actually need to actively lead them, actually actively raise them to know the Lord. Psalm 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, among other things, training up our children in the way they should go means training them up in, 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 in his word, training them up in his ways, and ultimately training them so that they will come to know him personally. I love the way James Merritt put it in his book titled, What God Wants Every Dad to Know. He says, fatherhood is more than conceiving, feeding, clothing, educating, and sending our children out on their own. Dads have the responsibility of preparing their children for the eternal destiny of actually meeting God. Amen? So, Father, we, we thank you that, that, that you and your word have, have shown the light, that your word is a light unto our feet. We pray that you would light the path of our feet, that we may walk in it, and then at the same time, we may lead our children, the next generation, in that path that they may follow our example. Lord, that we might live a life that could actually be followed. We might have marriages that our kids would one, one day want to have for themselves. We may have business relationships and conduct ourselves in private in a way that our children would want to model for themselves. That we see the light of your word and we walk in it, but then we model it for the next generation to follow so that they would want what we have, a relationship with you. And Lord, if we failed, and many of us have, then give us the humility to apologize, the humility to admit that we were wrong, that we made a mistake, and then to get back on that path so that we could lead others in it. That's our heart. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.